Tonight on Farage, is Boris Johnson's authority draining away? It begins to appear that it is as his backbenchers turn mutinous. And part of that problem, this morning's inflation figures don't look pretty. We'll examine what really happened in the English Channel yesterday, despite the fact the Home Office have not yet confirmed the numbers. And joining me on Talking Pints, former star of Atomic Kitten and a woman who's seen the ups and downs of life more than most, Kerry Katona. Where did it all go wrong? Boris Johnson is a man who's just breezed through life. He won the mayorship of London. He won a re-election. He's had a very successful career in journalism. He stormed the prime ministership, given the failure of Mrs May and Brexit not happening, and then won a thumping majority by modern standards at the end of 2019. Over the course of the last few months, there have been one or two mutterings about his style of leadership, about the fact that he's not really conservative at all. He's more of a liberal metro green. But something dramatic happened over the Owen Patterson case, where he made a very, very bad call. And it feels to me like it just could be the straw that breaks the camel's back. His authority, in my opinion, is draining away and very, very quickly. I was out last night and at lunchtime today, socialising with Conservative members of Parliament. They were virtually mutinous. And I'll go through all of that with Darren McCaffrey, who was there today to witness PMQs. Boris also appeared before a committee, and then he had the 1922 committee this evening. So we'll analyse Boris's day. But part of his woes, and indeed the government's woes, because don't forget, Clinton was right when he said, it's the economy, stupid is the extent to which this government and the Bank of England have consistently underestimated inflation. Now, I know, to you sitting at home, inflation may sound like an academic economic concept. And indeed, it's not a word that's really been part of the lingo for almost 40 years. Put in simple terms, it's the cost of living. And the inflation figure out at 7am this morning suggested it's rising at 4.2%. Well, one of the people who has been a hawk on this, who's predicted this would happen, is our economics editor, Liam Halligan. Liam, 4.2% inflation. But actually, my guess is, people at home are seeing their bills rise by more than 4.2%. You're right, Nigel. I agree with your comments in your introduction there. Inflation's been a story until very recently in the business sections of the papers. Nerds like me have gone on about it. But now it's on the front page of the main sections of newspapers. It's right across mainstream broadcasting. What the figure we saw today was that inflation in October, uh, the price level, the consumer price index was 4.2% higher last month than it was the same month in 2020. That's a big increase. That's double the Bank of England's 2% inflation target. And the biggest inflation rise for... Since November 2011. It's not just a UK thing. In America, inflation is 6.2%. But for the Bank of England not to have raised interest rates earlier this month seems pretty out to lunch, frankly, for the Bank of England governor to keep saying, oh, it's just transitory, it will pass, now looks silly. Even the Bank of England itself is looking at 4.5% inflation in this month of November, when the figures come out for that early in December, and 5% early next year. So if you're not getting a 5% pay rise, Nigel... You're losing. ..and not many of us are, yeah. you're losing money. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, it hits you both ways, doesn't it? Because, number one, it's the cost of living that goes up, and, as you say, the pay rise doesn't compensate... But equally, 
Here's the point that's been forgotten in this country. If you've got savings in the post office, the bank, the building society, sitting there in cash, not only is it earning tiny amounts of interest, but inflation's almost like a tax on that money, isn't it? Absolutely. When the inflation rate is above the rate of interest, that's called a negative real inflation rate. It means yeah. you're losing money twice over. That's what we've had for a long time in this country. And as the inflation rate soars away, the extent to which those savings of hardworking, ordinary men and women are being eroded is exaggerated. But just look at some of the fine print of the numbers today, Nigel. You have, you know, fuel prices are up a great deal. Ofgem raised the price cap on household fuel bills. The average household fuel bill now for a year is almost £2,000. That's absolutely huge. And that price cap is going to up, go up again for household bills in April. Look at petrol prices, yeah. diesel. Yeah. Yeah. We're now looking at one, one, you know, £1.50 a litre diesel. God, I remember when it was £1 a gallon was expensive. We're now £1.50 a litre. 27% increase mm. in the cost of second-hand cars since April. They may tell us 4.2%. is a pretty gross underestimate yes. of the reality of I what's agree. happening out there. I agree. And last point, very interesting, Amazon, the increasingly dominant Amazon. And, you know, with the pandemic, it just increased the extent to which people order things online at home and these vans drive around constantly. Yeah. And they've now said today they won't take Visa UK credit cards. Well, this is very interesting. We've been examining this on, my, on The Money Show, uh, which is 1pm every weekday on GB News. What this is is big tech really flexing its muscles. Visa is a very powerful company that lobbies the White House hard. You've now got Amazon, who have tie-up deals with MasterCard. They have their own pay system blocking the use of practically the biggest yeah. debit card system in the world. So big tech spreading its tentacles. And you're now going to have the guys of, at Visa saying to the White House, hey, don't be up on big tech because they're going to beat us up. This is a major flexing of the muscles of the big tech giants, Amazon chief among them. And I'm surprised, frankly, that more people aren't talking about it. Uh, so am I. And isn't it possible that some of the winners of this are blockchain and cryptocurrencies? I think that's right. I think cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, they're now really in the mainstream. They were dismissed by the banking establishment, almost all mainstream journalists yeah, yeah. until very recently as some kind of kooky fad. Uh, obviously, yeah. it was linked to criminality. I know the, the feeling web. well, by the way. Yeah, you know the feeling <laughs> well. But look, get this, Nigel. At a time when the Bank of England, the Federal Reserve, every central bank in the Western world is expanding their balance sheets, hugely printing virtual money, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, there can only ever be 21 million of them. No one can change that. These are things that governments and central banks can't print more of. Yep. And that's why in a time like now, an age like today, when central banks have gone gaga, frankly, in my view, those things are an incredibly important store of value and more to come. Fascinating. Liam, thank you very much indeed. Well, that adds to Boris Johnson's woes. Inflation, the cost of living, uh, and it's not going to go away in a hurry. So... In a sense, today has been a nightmare for Boris Johnson. I mean, a complete nightmare. A day when he's been held to account. A day when he simply couldn't run away. And a day that I'm suggesting has seen his authority begin to slip away. I'm going to debate that in a moment with our political editor, Darren McCaffrey. But please let me know what you think. Do you think the PM's authority is slipping away? GBviews at gbnews.uk. You can tweet at GBnews. And don't forget, 
You can also send in your barrage the farage questions which come at the end of the show, some of which do nearly clean bowl me, I have to tell you. Darren, what a day for the Prime Minister. You know what? Uh, I think of the, all the days in his premiership, he's going to look back at least and say that this has been one of his most difficult in terms of just having to admit that the last three weeks essentially have been a complete and utter disaster and the disaster that he has helped create. It started at lunchtime with Prime Minister's Question Time. A yep. few things about that. First of all, I think we've got a picture of what happened inside the Commons uh, today. And the most notable thing, hopefully we're going to see, is that how empty the Conservative benches were. I mean, yeah. frankly... Now, you may like to look at that and say it's pretty full. Actually, normally during PMQs, MPs cannot get seats. They can't even get onto those benches. They have to sit on the stairs because that chamber is made deliberately small that it's not got enough room for everyone. And it was much worse. I was in the press gallery. Those back benches were properly empty. Conservative MPs weren't even going to so turn so up. His own side back, didn't turn up. To back the Prime Minister during PMQs. Quite extraordinary. Second thing is, Keir Starmer had a good day today. He properly tore the Prime Minister apart uh, several times. Uh, the Prime Minister, kind of frankly, was just not up to bat to play uh, today. He then went from there to a meeting with senior MPs from across the board, the MPs that chair the various committees. And in that, he was again pressed time and time again about the mistake around yeah. Owen Paterson. He was forced to essentially say he made that mistake. It was on him. And frankly, it was just... It was just an uneasy watch for the Prime Minister. And Yvette Cooper, obviously the chair of the Home Affairs Select Committee, Labour MP, you got a sense that she was properly getting under the Prime Minister's skin. Let's have a watch. Yeah. believe that Owen Paterson broke the rules, yes, yes or yes, no? Yes, and, and, and uh, it, uh, at least that seems to me to... Yes, I do. Uh, and and uh, what, what we were... And, and uh, I, as I said at the beginning of the of PMQs two weeks ago, uh, we did not seek to uh, in any way minimise the importance of, of that. People who uh, break the rules on paid advocacy okay. must... Uh, must you are, you are still qualifying it. You're still saying, well, it seems to me. Do you recognise that given your responsibility to uphold the ministerial code, to uphold the rules, yes, to uphold yes, the standards, yes, it's really important that you should not give any impression that when there is an independent report that found on 14 occasions of paid lobbying that somehow you think that's no, okay. Can you clarify? Course, you don't think course, it's okay and you don't think that Owen, Owen Pettipatterson did was of right. Of course I don't. And, I was, and that was the first thing I said when I, when I, uh, when I uh, uh, began on this subject two weeks ago. Okay. And frankly, I think... So that was Boris Johnson answering those questions. Went on for nearly half an hour. I think there are several things just to pick out from that very briefly. First of all, um, you know, we, the Prime Minister got as far as he did. He didn't apologise, but he admitted it was his mistake. He also essentially kind of suggested that Mark Spencer and Jacob Rees-Mogg said that there was a kind of cross-consensus when it came to changing the parliamentary rules, which clearly there wasn't. So yeah. he feels he was led up the garden path by them. But also, more notably... I think it's pretty clear that the Prime Minister probably hadn't read the report into Owen Paterson. And only when he read the report into Owen Paterson with the Ferrari that followed that he realised, as he admitted there, that Owen Paterson undoubtedly had broken the rules. And in addition to that, 
if you're going to be a bit kind to the Prime Minister, and there are Conservative MPs who feel like this, that in the end, yet yeah, the Prime Minister was not looking at the detail, and he should have been, but he was trying to act out of sympathy to Owen Paterson, who's obviously had a very torrid time with sure. the loss of his wife for the last couple of months. Has Boris Johnson ever looked at detail? Well, I think this is one of the big criticisms of it is, and I was saying to you earlier on, wasn't I, that one of the big criticisms of Theresa May was that she was all detail and no big political picture, and one of the criticisms of Boris Johnson is he's all broad brushes and not across the detail at all. And as Prime Minister, you have to be able to do both or it catches you out. He then went, having been mauled of PMQs, had a really difficult time at the Liaison Committee to meet with the 1922, which is essentially his own backbenchers in Parliament. It should be home turf. Sure, well, I shut it out when you've got an 80-seat majority. It should definitely be home turf. And frankly, most MPs coming out of that are still pretty furious. Uh, they feel that this is a proper dent on his authority. The Prime Minister apparently said that he was caught driving down uh, a kind of empty road and crashed the car into the ditch. There's been a certain recognition from Downing Street today that they really, really have completely messed this up. I mean, it was mea culpa all day. He was eating humble pie since this evening. Where are we at now? In the last couple of minutes, we've had two votes in Parliament on the big issue about changes. The Labour motion, which wanted to ban second jobs completely, has been defeated. Mm. Uh, though lots of Conservative MPs, it looks by the majority, didn't bother to vote at all. Uh, that means that that Labour proposal is dead. Labour will try and make political capital out of that, of course. The government motion, though, on banning consultancy jobs and lobbying jobs has passed. So that will be part of an ongoing process going forward. The bigger thing, though, is where does this leave us with Boris Johnson's leadership? Now, we can get carried away, can't we, and say this has been a sea change moment and things won't go back to normal. And sometimes in the moment it's difficult to judge these things. But you, listening to Conservative MPs, me doing the same. Something's happened. There has been undoubtedly a significant dent to the Prime Minister's authority inside his own party. Yeah. To try and recover from that or to get back to where he was, that's going to be incredibly difficult. And we may look back in a year's time at these past three weeks and say this was a moment that actually yeah. was the start of kind of the change in impression amongst MPs towards their own leader. Very interesting. And Darren McCaffrey, they're echoing in a way what Trevor Kavanagh you know, strong Conservative Party supporters said on Talking Pints just the other evening. Harold Wilson once said, a week's a long time in politics. Well, in Boris's case, it's taken a fortnight. But I genuinely believe his authority is crumbling with inside his own parliamentary party. In a moment, we'll look back at the English Channel yesterday. I told you I thought it was going to be a record day. We don't yet have official numbers, but lots and lots to discuss. And is it ever going to end? Before we get back to the migrant crisis, the question I'm asking tonight of you. Is the Prime Minister's authority draining away? And some of your reactions coming in to this, indeed. You know, I get an email. I think it's time Boris called an election before he's forced to step down. Well, I don't think an election is on the agenda anytime soon. Angela says, I voted for Boris. I had high hopes, but he's been a huge disappointment. He's not leading on key issues and he's just bumbling from one disaster to another. Conservatives need to sort this out before it's too late. Well, yeah, they need to sort it out fast, it seems to me. Boris needs to reassert authority fast, but it could just be that it's actually within the parliamentary party just too late. Sandy emails me to say, Boris is a brilliant prime minister. If he is elected out, I will never vote again. For goodness sake, be careful how much you slate him, because we'll end up 
with a UK Labour government like we have in Wales, who, by the way, are totally useless. But look, I have to tell you, Sandy, it's not me that's slating him. You know, you've heard, you've heard from Darren McCaffrey, you've heard from me, we've been talking to Conservative members of Parliament, and they're mutinous, Sandy. They're mutinous because they don't think Boris is Conservative. They think he U-turns on virtually everything and is making just too many mistakes. Cheryl says, I don't think his authority is yet draining away, but his credibility certainly is. I do hope he'll be removed in favour of a real Conservative with some backbone. So, look, as ever with these things, split opinions. But something, folks, has changed in the course of the last couple of weeks. Now, yesterday, I reported that it was chaos again in the English Channel with large numbers of migrant boats coming over, uh, the RNLI effectively doing the job of border force, beach landings and all the rest of it. There's no official figure yet from border force as to how many arrived yesterday, but the Telegraph have a report that 1,135 reached the UK on Tuesday. We've also been told that five Channel migrants have been returned to Europe thus far this year, which is a lot more than none. But as winter, well, we're sort of almost in it, as winter approaches, let's have a look at the boats that are now being used to cross the Channel, because this is very, very significant. Right, have a look at that. That is your 11-metre, 36-foot boat. These are the boats that started being used this year, and the record on one of those was 83 people. But normally, normally, and here's one of them, with the number 912, that's 912 boats into Dover Harbour so far this year. But here's the point. Look at the sides. They're not the normal flat boats. These are built up. They've got upturned bows. These boats can deal with much heavier seas than, say, the boat on the left. See the difference? It's absolutely enormous. Upturned bow, big, big protective barriers on either side. And I would... I would hazard that even in moderate sea conditions, as opposed to calm, those dinghies can make it across the English Channel. And what it means is nothing is going to stop. It doesn't matter that the colder months are coming. They're going to keep coming in their thousands unless something is done. Now, I'm joined now by immigration lawyer and friend of the programme, Ivan Sampson. Ivan, good evening to you. Hi, good evening, Nigel. <coughs> are, you, are, you, are you, like many of us, shocked but the sheer numbers that are now coming across the English Channel. Uh, I am. And what really shocks me is this. There is no strategy. There's no system in place to deal with these people. And so, and more worrying than that is that we don't know the background of who these people are. Yep. Um, look, the 1951 convention was written at a different era. It was a time when we didn't have the Taliban, we didn't have ISIS. We didn't really have a threat from the Middle East as we do today. And I've really looked at this objectively and really reconsidered my position on this because I do think that we need to relook at that convention, perhaps even come out of the convention and have our own set of laws, our own acts to deal with this. Um, we need to know who these people are, where they come from, um, the Liverpool bomber, the taxi bomber, made me think that if he'd been assessed prior to coming to the UK 
would we have allowed him entry? I'm not sure about that. Ivan, your position so, here has changed quite significantly, hasn't it? Well, what I'm, I'm not, look, we have a responsibility to accept genuine migrants. That's never changed. And I, again, reiterate <coughs> that we need to accept about 100,000 a year. Look, I don't think any of your listeners would object to genuine migrants fleeing persecution who have a right to live in the UK. Ivan, can, that, can, I just, can I just interject for a moment? I think what vast majority of our viewers would not be concerned about is genuine refugees. People yes. who are fleeing in fear of their lives. But the concern is that over 20,000 undocumented young males have come into the country so far and that the pace mm. of that is actually speeding up, not slowing down. We've got no control over it. You cannot have... You might as well put a footbridge over the over the English Channel um, and allow people just to walk across. Look, look, it cannot go on. The Home Secretary has to get a grip of the situation. And I've said time and time again, she needs to enter into bilateral talks with the French. Diplomacy has to win. There's no reason why we can't assess these application, applications on the other side of the channel. Um, the Refugee Convention only allows these people to claim asylum um, in the country where they uh, enter. So that's the reason they need to come here, because they can't claim asylum on the other side. So if we had an agreement with the French for us to consider these claims in France, we could then also check the background of these people. Look, I've got children. And if I and I, I worry about the future for them because if I was a the Taliban or ISIS, I'd be sending people across the channel, um, and getting them asylum. And we've no idea how many no. people have come in well, who are super agents for these people. If we if we turn the clock back to 2015, to the mass migration that took place across the Mediterranean, ISIS actually boasted back in 2015 that they would use it to get their operatives into the continent of Europe. Ivan, can we deal with this, given we're still part of the European Convention on Human Rights, or do we... I mean, you've said already that the 1951 definition of what is a refugee needs revisiting, and I agree with you, you know, it's 70 years old, but can we deal with this? All, we rem you know, all the while, the Strasbourg Court has a say over these things. They do, but the, the, their decisions are not binding on us. I mean, we, we, we consider their decisions, but it's not binding. Look, we need to have our own set of laws on asylum. The 51 Convention is not fit for purpose, uh, for the reasons I've already set out to you before. And I think the Home Secretary needs to get into a bilateral agreement with the French uh, to come to an arrangement whereby we can consider these applications on the other side of the channel. There's no reason why a refugee has to physically be in the country to claim asylum. And if that was the case, once you pick them up in the channel, you take them back across, and that's where you consider their application. I mean, the, it's going to be hard talk with the French. But again, also, I think we need to proliferate asylums globally. The West has to take their fair share of genuine refugees. I'm all for genuine refugees. I'm not for people... Look, the, the Refugee Convention was not meant to, to, to be used by people coming from poor countries. That's not what it's meant for. It's meant yeah. for protection. Yeah. And I think that's happening a lot in the world where people see the UK 
as a place of uh, to improve their their financial situation. And I don't blame them, but that's not the, rep, the what the purpose of the Refugee Convention is. Um, there are other ways they can come through the immigration system. Ivan, really interesting. Thank you once again for joining us. And that was Pleasure. interesting because in the past I've argued with Ivan Sampson. We've taken very different points of view on what's been happening in the English Channel. Uh, and now there is actually quite a broad head of agreement between the two of us. It is unacceptable. Unacceptable and too big a risk, security risk, for this country to accept vast numbers of undocumented young males who come from the Middle East and all over the rest of the world. Now, linked to that, of course, the Liverpool bomber, we were told, amongst other things, had become a Christian. Mmm. There's been a rather deep investigation into all of this. And the Church of England today has been accused of aiding asylum seekers to game the immigration system by helping hundreds to convert from Islam to Christianity to help gain citizenship. And, of course, this is after the Liverpool bummer, Ahmed Al-Swilman, apparently did that. He lost his bid to stay in Britain in 2014. He became a Christian and appealed against it in 2017 when he was baptised and, indeed, confirmed. Um, we were told he'd spoken endlessly and passionately about Jesus. Well, perhaps he did, but... Members of the city's largest Anglican church admitted they'd lost contact with him. Funny that, isn't it? After the months after the ceremony. He was one of around 200 asylum seekers to adopt the faith there over a four-year period. And a clergyman at Liverpool Cathedral had previously raised concerns about asylum seekers cynically posing as Christians to boost their chances of being awarded refugee status. A spokesperson in response from the Church of England has said they're not aware of any evidence to suggest this is happening. Well, very clearly, something is wrong with it. Now, the next story is a real what the Farage moment. J.K. Rowling will not feature in a reunion to mark the 20th anniversary of the first Harry Potter film being released after posting what are called controversial tweets about transgender people. Streaming giant HBO Max said the cast members, including Daniel Ratcliffe, Rupert Grin, Emma Watson, they would feature in the TV special, but there was no mention of the person who actually wrote the books and made the whole thing possible in the first place. No sources close to the project told gossip site TMZ that she will feature in archive shots only, and it comes after the author was cancelled after being accused of transphobia when she joked about the title of an article which referred to people who menstruate, which failed to mention the word women. I mean, what is going on? I mean, who would have thought it even possible that J.K. Rowling could be considered by the hard left to be some terrible, deeply intolerant figure when she's nothing like that? The intolerance actually is on the other side, uh, and it's just monstrous. And I, well, I can't say I feel sorry for her, but I do think what's happening is wrong. Now, in a moment, I've got a guest coming on Talking Pints, somebody who was a big pop star, somebody who's made loads of money, somebody who's lost loads of money, made it back again. I'm in a real, absolute roller coaster of a life going to be, I think, a very interesting guest on Talking Pines. I'll be joined in a moment by Kerry Katona.
It's that time of the day. The pub is open. Thank goodness for that. It's Talking Pints. Before I introduce my guest, have a look at this clip and see if you remember. Yes, it's <laughs> Kerry Katona, who was oh, in Atomic... Cheers, Grey. Cheers, me lovely. To see you. How we diddling. Oh, this is lovely mm. in here, isn't it? Well, it's the GB News pub. It's not bad, isn't it? I mean, it's brilliant. You won't get this at the BBC or Sky News, oh, I can won't assure you. Yeah. You know. Kerry, really interesting. I mean, there you were in Atomic Kit and in a, in a, in a position of incredible fame. Yeah. I mean, really incredible fame and success and money. You did a very tough start mm -hmm. in life. How do, you, how do you go from a tough start to being in a video like that and being a star? In the right place at the right time, night. I was in a nightclub. I was in a nightclub and got approached. Uh, for me, it was, um, it, was, it, was, it was unbelievable. It was everything I ever wanted to become famous. And for me, when I say becoming famous, I wanted to be loved. Did That's you? what I wanted more than anything. I, I think everybody wants to be loved, but I was so desperate to be loved. So when I became a, a celebrity and I'm on the stage, it was, it was great. I loved it. I still do now. I still love performing but so, in so, the shower. So getting into this group, it just <laughs> yeah. happened. It just happened overnight. Yeah. So I was in the, I was in a nightclub, right place at right time. This guy said to me, "I know this guy called Andy McCluskey." For more casual news in the dark, I went along, took my page three photographs, yep. told a few jokes, sang a few songs, and they based a band around my personality, and I was a founder member. Now, page three, you, yes. just, you just mentioned it. Yeah. Page was three. you a fan, Nigel? Oh, big time. <laughs> 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 but we're not supposed to say that anymore. Um, but, but I don't page, see why not. I mean, page three, it's all stopped, it's yeah. all been banned, yeah. it's all seemed to be awful, it's all seemed to be demeaning mm. to women. How do you respond to that? Well, I do I do OnlyFans, Nigel, which is an over-18 site as yep. well, and that's how I've become a millionaire again. For me, at school, not going to lie, I had a great chest on me, I wasn't going to be a rocket scientist, can't believe I'm having this conversation with Nigel Farage on national television, but <laughs> I had a great rack on me and I wasn't going to become a rocket scientist. But I knew in my head to get out of this council estate and become what I wanted to. That, that was my get out. I was but, a pretty girl. Was I, it was doing page three? Was it demeaning? No, was not it at all. was it exploitative? No, no, I I, I, I loved it. I, I I enjoyed it. I felt empowered. This is my body, Nigel. I'll do with it what I want. And for me, I didn't have the brains to be a politician or a doctor, but I had the body and I had the brains to know to use that body to a certain extent, to get what I wanted. And that was the money and the success and the foundation for my children. My children go to have private education. All of my kids have had private education. I live in a beautiful £2 million house. I've done that. I've created it. And because I've created this, this little empire for me now, I've been able to invest in myself with my dating app and, and my clothing yeah, brand, I mean, my I mean, fitness I mean, brand. But before you got to where you are yeah. now, so you had this amazing app. And, you know, Atomic Kit yeah. is a mega success and people love it. You make quite a bit of money out yeah. of it. You get married, of course, to another big pop star. Yeah, Brian McFadden. So, kind of, you've gone from where you were to just this most incredible... So I, got, I got a blessing from the Pope when I married Brian. <laughs> Lord of God, that did like. But honest <laughs> to God, I've gone from this kid in foster home 
to, you know, inviting Mariah Carey to my wedding to get a blessing from John Paul the Pope that's himself. That's amazing. You know, and I think that goes to show you can achieve and do anything that you want to, that you put, you set your you mind to. you believe in yourself. 100%. I'm a massive believer in law of attraction, manifestation, affirmations, gratitudes. I'm a massive believer in all that. I've been on every side of the coin you can think of. But I've brought it all back. Because then you went into the jungle. I did go in the jungle. And you became the queen of the jungle. I did. You know what? That, for me, was, I think, still today, the highlight of my career. Was it? To have that amount of love. I keep going back to love again. And being put on that pedestal, which the press do do, Nigel, which you know it does. Well, they does. put you up, they then, put but you then up they... There, but, we'll come, they but, yeah. but we'll come to that we'll in a moment. that, yeah. It was I mean, amazing, it was amazing. So, wasn't it humiliating doing bush trucker trials and all this kind of stuff? Oh, God, no, it was great. For, for me, I get offered to do these reality shows, and for me, Nigel, I think, wow, what a great opportunity. I would never normally go and do something like that as a normal person. You wouldn't, unless it's... It's offered to you. I've got amazing memories. I've done great adventures. I've done things that I never thought I'd do in a lifetime. And I'm being paid to do it at the same time. So it was all going. Kind yeah. of, you know, we get, we get into sort of 2004, 5, 6. And kind of life can't get much better. Mm -hmm. But then it all goes wrong, Carrie. Yeah, it does. Why it all it, went wrong, didn't it? Was it too much success too quickly? No, was it... I think um, when my first husband left me, for me that was straight back down to earth. So when I was, before I met Brian, I was in Atomic Kit and I lived like in a council estate. I was doing drugs with my mother. Mm -hmm. And Brian was like this knight in shining armour, took me away, moved me to Ireland, sorted my life out. He left me straight back to where, I love my mum to bits by the way, she, she's, she's sound now. But straight back to where I started. So rather than grieving my marriage failure, not only did I feel a failure as a wife, a failure as a mother as well. Um, and my go-to was cocaine, unfortunately, and that, that became a best friend night. And then the press who'd... who'd oh, who'd they had lifted. a field day. And you were... And the news at World was around, they had a field day with me, they did. you were plastered, weren't you? All, yeah. over, all over the Murdoch Everywhere, yeah. And it was yeah. relentless. Yeah, it made me feel suicidal. It really was. Did it? it was, yeah, yeah, there was like 40 paps outside my house every single day. I, I know that Saturday phone call... When you, got, you know, I know what it, you know, I know what it's it. like. I've been and, through it, yeah. And you'd be scared. And, like, and my phone, even to this day, is always on silent. I hate phone calls. I always think it's going to be bad news. You know, mm -hmm. if my manager rings, and, oh my God, what is it? I get really scared. Uh, yeah, it was a point, it was suicidal. Um, that, you know, I couldn't trust everybody. Everyone was telling stories. And then obviously there, there, there was, you know, the, the hacking thing. And it was like, I didn't know who to trust. And, and cocaine became. My confidence, it, it gave me confidence when I needed it. It was there when nobody else was. And it just turned out to be a liar, really, like most men, Nigel. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I, ha I, nearly, I nearly died doing that, but I had to turn it all around. Yeah. And what, how did you, I mean, because with the cocaine and with mm. where you got to. And then went bankrupt. And then, going to say, the money started. Yeah. So where did all the money go, Carrie? Well, I had a dodgy accountant. And, uh, yeah, he, he robbed loads of people, but I was the only time he did it. So he got sent down for it. But a lot of people think that it was because I spent my money on cars and drugs. Yeah. Listen, I could afford to buy all the drugs. I could afford to go and buy a Porsche. I could afford to do what? But, unfortunately, I trusted the wrong people with my money. And I lost everything. So he nicked your money? Yeah, 
I lost everything. I had a dodgy husband as well at the time. I lost everything. And for me... So, you, so you're declared bankrupt? Yeah. And how, how humiliating was that? You know what? This is a thing that we don't speak about as well in, in life. When you lose your money, there's almost, you almost get dismissed. You know, you go from here, but just because I lost my money didn't mean I, I, I changed as a person. I was still that nice, kind, caring, funny, awesome person I was. But because you haven't got that money in the bank that you first had, it's almost like, oh, we don't know what to do with her now. But it was the best thing that happened because all those... I the press. So when you've gone bankrupt, yeah. do you suddenly go from being somebody who's been in the press for 10 or 15 years? Are you just sort of persona non grata, ignored? Oh, no, I was constantly in the press. You were still in the press. All the, the way through it. Oh, I mean, even today, it's all the way through. I think I've got to... I think the press have changed hugely. It's better, isn't it? It is better, but we're still not quite there. It is better than what it used to be. I mean, back in the day, it was, it was awful. You know, the cameras was up the skirts, getting in a taxi. You know, you walk out of a, uh, a place and you blink and it's like, oh, my God, she's drunk. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah but... Um, yeah. I had all that. Yeah, yeah but it's, yeah, not like, yeah. it's not like... I mean, you but, see, not, but not to the level that you had. No, the level I, mean. I had was... It was awful. It, I mean, when I did this morning interview, you know, the front page, Mary Kerry, Sherry Kerry. I mean, I laugh at it now. But going back to bankruptcy, when I first went, looking yeah. back on it, that was the best thing that happened to me. Go on. Because all those hangers-on... He was all, I was buying their love and their friendship. They all just disappeared like rats. Mm. They all just vanished. Because they weren't real friends. Yeah. And then I really had to work hard. I was The thing that people don't understand with bankruptcy is I still work and I still earn money, but you're only allowed to live on a certain amount of money. So I was still earning money, but they all just disappeared because that money had to be so... Um, well looked after and what it had to go on, but they all just disappeared. And how do you deal with the cocaine problem? Oh, that was easy. That was the easiest thing ever. Really? Giving up cigarettes was harder. <laughs> I haven't managed that. Yeah, thing yet. yeah. Well, but, but... I just stopped cigarettes. Cocaine, cocaine was. It wasn't. It wasn't like I was addicted to it. I was a binger. That once I, I started, I couldn't stop. Um, for me, it was. I moved down south. I was living up north. I packed my car up. I thought. I'm going to end up dead. I packed my car up, got the kids in the back of the car, we're going on an adventure, kids, and I moved down south. And it was the best you know, thing I ever did. Drugs are everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere from the big city to a little village in rural England. Yeah. I mean, what do you say to your kids about these drugs? Well, I think my kids... My kids wasn't aware that I was doing drugs. My Molly and Lily... I think Molly was nine and Lily was eight, and I sat them down and I did a documentary called uh, Cocatona Coming Clean. And I wanted, there was in this big private school, and I wanted them to see the documentary themselves. And they were said, shocked. They was like, when did all this happen? For me, I'd like to think that my kids know what I've been through. I'm very open and honest. If, even in front of my seven-year-old, if someone asks me about addiction, I will speak about it. There's no... There's, it's completely open. I want people... I want my children to know every side of it that you can think of. You know, so I like to think that they wouldn't do it because they've seen what I've gone through myself. You said earlier on in this interview that, 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 that the feeling that cocaine was your friend yeah. and was there when nobody yeah. else was there, that it, that, 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 but, but that it was all a lie. Mm. Yeah, it is. I mean, it is a lie. It's, all, it's called the devil's dandruff. And it, it's the most evil thing in the world, um, even more so than Mark Croft. It is very, very evil. <laughs> and for me, it's something I know that I'll never, ever go back and do, ever in a million years. Uh, I've worked too hard to get to where I am today. Yeah. 
And, and what do we do with young people? Is the messaging right in schools or...? No, it isn't. And another thing that's not even good in schools as well, which really gets to me, like the bankruptcy and the drugs, it's not spoke about. You go to school, Nigel, and you learn about the Battle of Hastings, right? What's that going to do for somebody when they leave school? No-one teaches you about a mortgage. I want you to tell me why it's not in the education. Yep, No-one yep. teaches about mortgage, don't teach about bankruptcy, unless you do a business course. Yep. And not everybody does that, and it's only briefly spoke about then. You don't teach about your VAT or your tax or life insurance or a will or a mortgage. No so you're not being prepared for life. You're not, be and they're the most important things. You have to, you know, the whole dream is, you know, getting married, having kids, getting a mortgage, getting your life. No one teaches you any of that. No I love one... it. I love it. You're right. Like your credit card, no one teaches right. you about anything. Just getting people to pass exams is not education. Well, I don't think so. It's no, about I, I, life I'm skills. I'm with, I'm with you, I'm with you. No one, no one and even today, like, when my children leave school, they're not going to have a class to get a mortgage. No one teaches that kind of stuff. Or about drugs and mental health. It's not taught enough. One in four people suffer. I've got bipolar. One in four people suffer with a mental health. No one teaches it in school properly. I think it's wrong. Come on, Nigel, you can you sort ever, this out. You ever thought about politics? I'm <laughs> <laughs> Me, FMP. But you're really passionate there about the way we should be bringing teachers. 100%. I think we go on about life, and the reason why so many people make these mistakes with drugs is due, a lot of it, to mental health, and it's not spoken about enough in the skills uh, at all. Addiction, bipolar, things like domestic abuse. This is real-life stuff that you're taught that happens to people when they grow up, you know, and none of that is taught, and I think it's wrong. No, I, what can you do about it, Nigel? Well, out look, here, love. Look, no, I, look, I'm with you. I think the education system, we're letting our kids down in this country Massive, terribly. Hugely. At school, I think we're sending too many kids to university yeah. who get degrees that don't help and them. And they don't even do anything with well, it. They could be learning trades and skills yeah. and things they're proud of 100%. for themselves. So, no, I'm, I'm, I'm very I'm absolutely with you on that. Um, after all these disasters, you then decide <laughs> that the big dipper of the Katona life... <laughs> You see, which is after some pretty big highs. And you, you've hit the lows here, but you've given up the horrible white powder stuff yeah. and you've decided you're going to fight your way back. Yeah. I've got to ask you about OnlyFans. Yeah. Which... Do you want a, sub do you want a free subscription now? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, I don't mind. <laughs> Friends discount and all. I've got to ask you about <laughs> I'm ignoring that. The I've got to ask you about it. Yeah. I mean... That is exploitative, isn't it? Mm. Well, it depends on what you do on there. I mean, this, this, what is the difference than me? I go topless every year on holiday because I don't want tan marks because I do photo shoots. Look at the photo shoots back in the day. You had Zoo magazine, you had FHM, uh, you had Nuts. You know, there's nothing that I've not done in those magazines that I'm not doing on OnlyFans. Okay. And I go topless every year on holiday with my children just because I'm lying there like that and my nipples are under my armpits. But when I'm doing OnlyFans and I'm stood like that... Yeah, I'm making the money. Yet when I'm on a beach with the kids, the pups are getting pictures right. and making the money. Because there are lots I be of making the money. No, fine, Kerry. If you're doing it and yeah. you're in control of it and you're well, in charge of it, yeah. and that's fine. But there has been a lot of criticism of that site, hasn't there? Um, I don't know. I think it's an over 18 site. You know, it, it, it's for an over 18s people. I don't understand what the criticism is. It's not just um. Topless and well, well, that kind of thing. The, you can go on there and do a makeup the, tutorial or a The criticism is that, it's, that it is de facto a sort of pornographic site. Yeah. Well, it, it can 
be. It depends on what you're signing up for. By all means, a lot of stuff I do is very sexy. I do topless modelling on there. That's yeah. as far as I go. Because okay. I do have to... My, my Molly, who sat out there, she took pictures of me. There's no difference me what she's going to be mortified now. Me walking out on a beach, at a bar... In the sun, in the Bahamas, having a pint, topless, enjoying the sun, and then a pap gets a picture. Yeah. So I can't... Yeah. I do it. I right. take control. Yeah. Get my kids a private education it. with it so they can go learn about the Battle of Hastings and get no real-life education. <laughs> yeah. Ancient Greek. Boris Johnson's got all that stuff. Ancient Greek and all the rest I of it. I don't guess it. I don't understand it. And Kerry, you're also involved with thrills. Yes, you? I am. Tell us about that. So I'm the creative advisor of thrills. The thrills is like... A personal message to your fans. You know, we all used to autographs back in the day, but now because yeah. of social media and yeah. things like that. So a fan can get in touch, ask for a personal video, happy birthday, congratulations on your wedding from whichever fan they want, whether it's myself or, I don't know, yourself, if you ever wanted to do something like that, Nigel. And I think it's amazing to give that person. For me, Nigel, I, I love nothing more than making people smile. Uh, I You're good at it. I am. See? There you go. And I did that one for free for you. <laughs> for me, it's about making people happy. You've got one life, haven't you? And that's what Thrills is all about. And you can do corporate things as well, to like do a video about mental health or cheer somebody up. We've had this awful pandemic and I've loved nothing more than sending personal videos of happy birthday, congratulations, singing a bit of hole again. And, and knowing making money. And making money. At the end of the day... I'm, I'm going to make money what I've, uh, where I can. So I've, got five, I've got an orphanage at home, me, Nigel. I've got to my gigs. <laughs> so you're back on top. Yeah. Life's great. Yeah. No more disasters. Well, no I can't fall. say that because I'm only human at the end of the day. Do you know what I mean? Life's life. You don't know what's around the corner. It's how you deal with it. That's the difference. That was Kerry Katona <laughs> finishing her Talking Pints piece with some real philosophy. <laughs> that Well, there you are. Now, it's the end of the show, the last couple of minutes, and it's Barrage the Farage time, where you send your questions in, which I do not get to look at. So here goes. There were some real toughies last night. Adrian asks, why has the migrant crisis got worse and not better in the last ten years? That's really simple, because ten years ago, when people came illegally to Britain, we would deport them. Now they come illegally to Britain, and they can just stay, and we pay for their accommodation, and they work in the criminal economy, and that Liverpool bomber had been in this country at your expense for the last seven years, and he shouldn't, frankly, have been here. Kevin asks, is there any political party that can tackle the issue of illegal immigrants? It's really interesting. <laughs> These questions coming in. You know, Boris can go to COP26, and David Attenborough, and, you know, the Prince of Wales, and that slightly disturbed teenager from Sweden can all tell us that, we're, you know, we're all going to die in the next fortnight unless we don't drive our 4 by 4s or whatever it may be. But the issue of illegal immigration really is getting people. At the moment, no-one's got, frankly, the courage to deal with it. A viewer asks, on fish and chips, which goes on first, the salt or the vinegar? Well, I'm in trouble on this. Kerry, what would you put on first, salt or vinegar? Whichever's nearest. Whichever's nearest. <laughs> that was a useless answer. Yeah, whichever one's um, The rest of the interview was great. That was useless. <laughs> I've always actually put the salt on first. Whether I'm right, whether I'm wrong, I don't know. Um, Mike asks, what question... Oh, here we go. I'm going to be in trouble here, aren't I? <laughs> what question would you most like to ask Meghan Markle? Mm. It wouldn't be a question. 
but a request. Please never, ever come back to the United Kingdom again. We don't <gasps> want to see... Do you like Meghan Markle? I do. No, you I don't. Do, yeah. you know, but she's a compulsive liar. I just like her in suits. Yeah, but that was years ago. No, but I think now it's all right. She's, I do. She's corrupted Prince Harry. It's a disaster. I like Prince Harry as well. Well, I did. Well, I don't like... Me and Nigel will give everybody a chance, love. Everyone deserves oh. those second chances, oh, love. They, Look they, at me. They've had, that's a fair <laughs> point, but they've had more than enough chances, in my opinion. <laughs> Goodness gracious me. Well, look, that was a joint effort, wasn't it, really, between Carrie and I to answer all your questions.